0: Morning. We have a special guest here, Corey and Ruthie. Uh, they're over here and they're the owners of Chick fil A on Foothill. Yes. And uh, before the service, he promised that he was going to open it just for us today. Thank you, brother. All right, we are in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I was kidding, by the way. <laughs> I was kidding. <laughs> but they are the owners of Chick-fil-A. That part was true. Uh, Romans chapter eight. You have a lot of fans, brother. Romans chapter 8. And that is page 944 in those blue Bibles, if you're using one of those. So flip your, your copy of God's Word to that section. And this is actually part two. We did a... We started this last week looking at verses 1 through 4. So last week we began to take, a, like I said, a look at the first four verses of chapter 8. And we focused, if you remember, mostly on verse 1 and the amazing truth uh, that is found in that particular verse. And I also pointed out to you that this chapter, Romans chapter 8, is filled with or loaded with references to the Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, more so than any other chapter in the New Testament, and here in Romans 8, the the references to the Holy Spirit are primarily to what the Holy Spirit does, what he does, not so much about who he is, but more about what he does and the vital role that he plays in the gospel and the critical ministry that he has specifically in the life of the believer, the one who has embraced that gospel, and one of the primary things that the Holy Spirit does, and if you can just kind of keep this in the back of your mind as we move through this section of Romans 8, one of the specific things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer is he takes what Jesus Christ achieved, we've been singing about it this morning, uh, what he achieved, that is, through his substitutionary and sin-bearing sacrifice on the cross. He takes those things that Christ achieved and he applies them to the believer through his indwelling ministry in their life. So try to keep that in the back of your mind. Christ secures these great benefits through his work on the cross. The Spirit of God comes and applies those great benefits to the believer. Okay? You with me so far? All right, let's take a look at the text Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul writes these words There is therefore now no condemnation Might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, inside of your bulletins, you'll find an outline. It's the same one that we had last week as we're just continuing this message. And so, we're going to continue to look at three amazing truths that result, very simply, from the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of the Christian. And we're doing that so that we might better understand. His, the Holy Spirit's role, very important role in our lives as believers, okay? So the first one was elimination of condemnation. The second we'll look at today is liberation from the law of sin and death. And third, fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law. So some of you may not have been here last week, or maybe just don't remember everything that was said last week, so I'll give you a little review to kind of catch you up. Last week, we covered the first point. And the first point was elimination of condemnation. Do some of you remember that? Very important point. I told you then I wanted to just focus primarily on that point because it's so critical, so important for our Christian lives to get that, to understand it, to meditate on it. In verse 1, Paul makes a statement, as, we've been, as we looked at, that really every Christian should, should permanently tattoo on their heart and mind. That being that for all those who are in Christ... Meaning for all those who through saving faith have been indwelt by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, and thereby spiritually united or joined to Jesus Christ. For all those people, for every believer, there now remains no condemnation from God. None. Why? Why? Because through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, through the third person of the Trinity, they have become the beneficiaries of what God's own sinless and righteous Son did on the cross, like I was mentioning earlier. And what was that? What did he do on the cross? Well, it was something, beloved, that was absolutely incredible and and truly incomprehensible. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, became the sinner's substitute and bore in full the sinner's penalty and punishment that they justly deserved for all their failure, for all their disobedience, for all their rebellion. Or to say it in one simple way, for all their sin. For all their sin. And that, beloved, is one glorious reality of the gospel that the Christian should always relish and will need to recall again and again and again. Remember we talked about this last week? Why? Because the great enemy of their soul, who do you think the great enemy of our souls is? The devil, Satan. When he tries to steal the joy of your salvation and tries to undermine your motivation to live for the Lord by, by telling you when you, you do sin that, you know what? Your condemnation still remains. Because that's what he says. Remember, I talked about this last week. He tells the unbeliever, there is no condemnation for you. Don't worry about it. You're good with God. He tells the Christian who is good with God that they're not good with God. He lies both ways. And so we have to remember this truth found here in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for me. I am in Christ Jesus, it's been wiped away. But as we looked at verse 1 last Sunday, if you were here, you might remember that I, I briefly drew your attention to verse 2 because it's connected to verse 1. It's connected by Paul's use of the word for. At the beginning of verse 2, look back at your text, look back at the Word of God, see that it's there. And as I previously explained, the word for in the Scriptures regularly serves as a marker to alert you to this phrase following for that it's a cause or a reason for something that has just been said. Okay, It's a cause or a reason for something that has just been said. So verse 2 is connected to verse 1. So based on that, I understand Paul to be saying in verse 2 that the reason that those who are in Christ are entirely free from condemnation, as it says in verse 1, is because for this reason, according to verse 2, it's because, and look at it there in your text, the law of the spirit of life, and, and who is he talking about, the spirit of life? We talked about it last week. The Holy Spirit, right? We know that. We can make some references. Like, for instance, John chapter 6, verse 63, where there we are told it is the Spirit who gives life. Actually, Christ said that. Those are His words. Or Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, the Spirit gives life. Again, the Apostle Paul. So this is the Spirit of life, or the life-giving Spirit. So it is the, it is the law of the Spirit of life. He has set them free from the law of sin and death. So I believe, and I told you I was going to explain this, and I will, or do my best to but I believe right now, just on the front side, the general conclusion you can draw from these two verses, verse one and verse two, is that a liberation has taken place. We've been set free from something, the believer has, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and that liberation, that being set free, is the basis on which the person in Christ is now forever saved from any condemnation. So today we're just going to pick up where we left off last week, and this brings me to the second point in the outline, or the second amazing truth that is the result of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of the believer. And hopefully this will all start to come together for you. And that second point is liberation from the law of sin and death. Liberation from the law of sin and death. Look back at verse 2. Remember, it's connected to verse 1. Paul says this For the law of the Spirit of life, we just looked at it. Just want you to see it again. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So I want to address first Paul's use of the word law. Do you see it there in the text? Do you see it? It occurs twice, twice in this verse. He puts it in the front of the spirit of life to describe that, and he puts it in front of sin and death to describe that. Now listen, I've talked to you about the word law before because it shows up a lot in the book of Romans. We just got out of chapter 7. It was all about the law. Okay, And, and typically, when Paul uses the word law, generally speaking, he is using it in a very specific sense to refer to, to what? Huh? The law of Moses, the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to the nation of Israel through his servant Moses. So we call it the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, we refer to it in, those, in that way. But we also know, and I've already shown you this, we also know that he does not always use the word law in that way. He doesn't always use it with that specific sense. Do you remember chapter 3? He makes a reference to the law of faith, the law of faith. And there he's actually comparing it to the Mosaic law. He says, we're not justified by the Mosaic law. We're justified by the law of faith. So there he's not using it in any way to refer to the Mosaic law, but he's using it, generally speaking, to refer to the the principle of faith or the rule of faith more figuratively. And do you remember at the end of chapter 7? If you were here, he uses the word law multiple times, right at the end of chapter 7, which is right before chapter 8, without any reference to the Mosaic law. Okay, so he does not, all I'm pointing out to you is he does not, every time you see the word law, yes, generally speaking, especially in Romans, it is referring to the Mosaic law. But Paul does not always use it that way. Sometimes he's, he's actually playing on the word itself. And I believe that's what he's doing here. He's... In this chapter, chapter 8, verse 2, specifically, he's using the word law figuratively. Figuratively. So when you think of law, or even you think of the Mosaic law, you might also think of these words, power and authority. Power and authority. And I think that's exactly, this is what I believe, I believe this is exactly what he's doing And he puts the word law in front of both these particular subjects, the spirit of life and sin and death, because he wants to contrast. He wants to contrast or make a contrast between the power and authority of the one and the power and authority of the other. So you could read it this way, I believe. He's contrasting the power and authority of the life-giving spirit or the law of the spirit of life with the power and authority of sin and death, or the law of sin and death. You with me? Okay. So with that understanding of the word law, I would conclude then that the believer... Any believers out there? Okay, a few, good. The one who has exercised... That's good to know but I know there's some that are not out there. We need to talk to you later. But the one who has exercised saving faith, that's the believer. The one who's trusting in Jesus Christ. Not they were, but they are. They are. The one who has been born again. That one. The one who is indwelt by the one, listen, by the one who has power and authority through Christ Christ to set them free and impart new life. Who's that? That's the spirit of life. The spirit of life has power and authority through Christ to set the believer free. And to to release them from their bondage to the power and binding authority of sin and death. And once he does that, because they are no longer, listen, because they are no longer imprisoned by those awful powers, they now can be fully assured that they are entirely free from any and all condemnation. And I I believe... Because there's some discussion about this. There's some, some debate about this. But I believe that's what Paul is saying. I believe that's the connection he's making. And listen, while the power and authority of sin and death may be great, and it is, it is ultimately no match. No match for the power and authority of the Holy Spirit, who as the agent of our salvation, I got that phrase from somebody I was reading, and I I like it. The agent of our salvation. He sets the believer free once and for all. How? By applying to them the amazing benefits that were won or secured for them by Jesus Christ on the cross. You see? Remember I told you at the beginning that the Holy Spirit, we talk about Often we talk about the Father's role in our salvation, right? Before the world was even formed, He had already determined salvation, the plan of salvation. How would, before even one of us were made, before the earth hung in the universe, He had already determined the plan of salvation? So we think about the Father and we think we give Him praise and glory for His great plan, and so just and merciful and loving is this plan. We think about Christ, the Son, who willingly, not against His will, willingly, in cooperation with the Father, fulfilled what was necessary to complete the Father's plan. But often we leave out the Spirit in the matter of the gospel or our salvation. The Spirit plays a very vital role in the life of a believer. So we'll continue to talk about this. So that brings me, now listen, that brings me Liberation from the law of sin and death brings me right to, we're continuing on now, verse 3. Watch. Look back at the text. Here's another foreword. For God has done, so right after he said, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And as I told you, I think he's talking about the power and binding authority of one setting us free from the power and binding authority of another. And then it says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now listen, this verse is the explanation of why the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the life-giving Spirit, is able to set the believer free. This is the explanation by Paul. See, the liberating work of the Holy Spirit on behalf of the believer that Paul refers to in verse 2 that we just looked. At, can only take place because, because of what God did about sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. You following me? It's a little difficult section, so I'm, we're taking it slow, trying to work it out, work out the details of it. So one writer says this, one commentator says this concerning verse 3, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can liberate the believer from sin and death set them free only because in Christ and His cross, God has already condemned sin. Condemned sin. Now, we'll come back to that, that thought, that idea here in a moment. But first, just look at verse 3, the beginning of it again. See what it says. It says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Remember we had chapter 7, that whole discussion of the law, the Mosaic law. So Paul's not done with the discussion yet. He's still talking about it. So now, the law here is certainly, it's certainly a reference to the Mosaic law. No doubt about it. And it fits with the context, especially of Romans chapter 7. So he's saying, what the law that God gave through Moses could not do because of the weakness of the flesh, and we see references to that in chapter 7, God did by, through his Son by condemning sin in the flesh. But what was it that the Mosaic law weakened by the flesh, by the way, what is that, the flesh? Well, Paul makes reference to that several times. It's that unredeemed part of us, that part of humanity that rebels against God. Okay? So, even if you're redeemed, you still carry with you this unredeemed part of you. It is, you are not yet fully glorified. You have not yet, as a Christian, fully experienced all the blessings of your great salvation. Not yet. Okay? So, there's still this unredeemed part of us. But what was it that the law could not do because of our flesh? What was it? Well, we've already looked at it. We've been looking at it for months. In the book of Romans, Paul's already made this clear, what the law could not do. It could not, it was not, able, because of the weakness of our flesh, able to justify us or make us right with God. Do you remember that? I mean, that's a big part of Romans. Who, in their right mind, would think that they could be justified through this holy law? They can't because... They can't keep the law, not perfectly, and that's what it would require in order for you to be justified or declared right in God's sight with the law. Okay, so it's impossible. Because of the weakness of our flesh, it's impossible that one would be justified before God through the law. But that's not all that the law is not able to do because of the weakness of our flesh, and we've been looking at that when we got into chapter 6. It is also unable to sanctify us. Remember I've been saying that? So the law can't justify us because of the weakness of our flesh. It's not the law's fault. That's the point he made in Romans chapter 7. The law is good and holy. It's us. The problem is is with us. So it's unable to sanctify us or to enable us to truly live for God. Remember when we were in Romans chapter 7? Paul even makes this statement, the law even arouses our sinful nature. The law says, thou shalt not covet, and all of a sudden Paul says, and then I find myself doing all kinds of coveting. It's that rebellious part of our nature, that fallen part of our nature. So the law, here's the deal, guys. The law has no, it's good, it's holy, but it has no power to break sin or break the power of sin over fallen humanity. So the law can provide us with the knowledge of sin but it but it, just remember this it does not provide the cure. It tells us it tells us what sin is it shows us our sin but it just leaves us there dying. It's not able to rescue us from the awful and damning rule and reign of sin. If we were left to the law and the law alone we would find ourselves in one place condemned before God and unable. The law would not help us live for God. It would not. It cannot because of our our fallenness, because of our flesh. But according to verse 3, listen, according to verse 3, God did what the law could never do by sending his own son. He took the initiative, beloved. He took the initiative. He sent his son. He did what he knew the law couldn't do. There's a lot of people who are confused about this. They think the law can do these things. They think the law can justify them. They think the law can sanctify them. God knew it couldn't do those things. It condemned, it showed their need for a Savior, their need for the grace and mercy, sweet mercy of God. It showed their need for this great plan of salvation that God had already. Ordained before the foundations of the world. And so he did what the law could never do by sending his own son, Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, this is some interesting terminology, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means this it means that while Jesus was fully human, because this is important, he was fully human, right? How could he be our substitute if he wasn't a human being? He's fully God, but he's also fully human. But he remains sinless. He remains sinless, for it does not say, watch closely what Paul does. It does not say he came in sinful flesh. It doesn't say that, does it? No, it does not. Notice the the little subtleties. They're not even really subtleties. They're right there in your face. Paul's making, he's being very specific with his his choice of words. He didn't come in sinful flesh. Rather, he came how? In the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And so it was because of, listen, Jesus' unique birth. You know Jesus was not born like any other man or woman, right? You guys all know that? Okay. Okay. He was, but he was born fully human in every way, but because of his unique birth, he was born without sin. So he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And because of that, Jesus was able to be the perfect and righteous substitute because that's what was required. The perfect and spotless Lamb of God. The perfect substitute for humanity when he offered himself up For sin. And when he did that on the cross, God the Father, because he was the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God and a human being, he accepted that sacrifice on our behalf. And he condemned sin in him. In him on behalf of sinners. That is to say, let me kind of wrap it up like this. That is to say that God judged and punished our sins in the sinless humanity of His own Son, who bore them in our place. And in doing so, sin's absolute power and authority and claim on humanity was over. Throne once and for all that's what happened see the, the work on the cross is so significant beloved the work that jesus accomplished the thing that he did is big it's massive it's huge it's like i said almost incomprehensible to think about what really occurred when christ laid down his life his human flesh on our behalf in our place One writer says it this way, just summarizing all this, he says it this way, very simple. It was in the person of the incarnate Son, incarnate, he was incarnated, God became flesh, he took on that human nature, that the Father brought an end to the power of sin. But remember this, remember this, that this great salvation that we rejoice in, we who are believers, and that we sing about on Sunday, and all of its benefits that have been secured by the work of Christ. Remember this, they are not automatically given to all of humanity, are they? Are they? They're not. If they were, then we could stop preaching the gospel, we could go home, we could do our own thing because everyone's already saved. Your thought about that? Why isn't everyone saved? I mean, if Christ died on the cross for sinners, why aren't they just automatically saved? Why don't they get that free pass once they die and go see God? Why isn't everyone... And by the way, some people believe this. Some people do believe that everyone is going to go to heaven. That's not true. That's not true. Rather, the benefits that Christ secured on the cross are applied by the Spirit of God. They are applied by the Spirit of God to those who believe, to those who believe. And the Spirit comes into their life and bestows those incredible benefits to them, setting them free, giving them new life. For all those who have exercised saving faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ. And for all who do that, they receive the blessed gift of the Spirit, right? Does every believer have the Spirit? Yes! Yes, they have to. They have to because the Spirit sets them free. The Spirit comes into their life and applies the benefits won for them by Christ. I mean, there's some, I don't, I don't know if you ever heard, there's some crazy stuff like you can be a Christian without the Spirit and then you get the Spirit later on in your life. Uh, no, no, because you're not a Christian without the Spirit. You're not in Christ without the, who unites you to Christ? Remember we talked about that in Romans 6? Who baptizes you? Who submerges you into the body of Christ, into Christ himself? Who does that? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. So the idea that someone could be a a Christian but not have the Spirit, and they have to do some weird, funky stuff, or someone has to pray over them and lay their hands on them or something, and then all of a sudden they shake them enough and they finally get the Spirit, that's all craziness. It's craziness. It's not true. It's not biblical. That person is not a Christian. You see what I'm saying? You see... When you begin to read through the gospel, begin to understand these things, then you see clearly you're not, you're not caught astray by these crazy ideas that are, have been pushed uh, through so-called preachers and teachers of God's word. And so now we move to the last amazing truth that is a result of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of a Christian. And it's fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law. What is that? What is that? Thomas, this is when you come up and go ahead and give the answer. Nope. Okay, all right. Well, let's, all right, I'll do it, man. I'll do it. Romans 8, chapter 4, and then it says, in order that, this is just continuing from verse 3, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So let's follow the flow of logic. God condemned sin in his son, right? We just looked at that. He broke sin's back. Yeah, yeah. And he brought an end to the power and authority of sin. And why did he do that? Well, the text says, So that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us. That is, who's the us? In those who walk not according to the flesh, but rather those who walk according to the to the Spirit. That is, those whose lives are controlled and governed by the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. Those. So, watch. What is the righteous requirement of the law that God has made provision for the Christian to fulfill by means of the indwelling? Holy Spirit. What is it? What is it? Do you see it in the text? Nope. The question I just answered you is not in the text. Paul does not specify here what the righteous requirement of the law is. And so guess what? Because he doesn't specify, Bible teachers and scholars differ on their understanding of what it means, okay? Some, some, of, these, some of their understandings, I think, are, are good, some not so good, some strong, some not so strong. But I'm just going to tell you, this is where I land right now. I am persuaded that the righteous requirement of the law is love. Is love. And I'm not coming up with that, there's, you know, other people who have taken that position. Well, let me and you and you say why? Why do you say that? Well, let me let me show you something first. Just a couple of things. First, the word requirement, look at your text. The word requirement in the text is singular. It's singular. Now, if you have an NIV, it says requirements. That's wrong. So this is just something I wanted to show you, why it's good to compare Bible translations. The NIV is a good translation on many levels, but they take a little more liberty with the exactness of the text sometimes. And they made an interpretive decision there, instead of translating it like it really is, they change it to requirements, which would certainly kind of change the meaning a little bit. It's not the righteous requirements of the law, it is the righteous requirement, okay? So one righteous requirement, as opposed to many. Because if you think requirements of the law, what might you immediately think? All the commandments. Wouldn't you immediately think that? So God has done what he's done so that we might fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. So just start going through them. But that is not what it says. All right? You with me so far? So what is the one thing that the law requires? What is the one thing that the law requires and can be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit? What is that? Now, listen. I'll give you another one. This is another possibility. It's good. I like it, it's solid. Another possibility is that what Paul is saying is the righteous requirement of the law is perfect obedience. It's possible. That perfect obedience, that's what the law requires. Ultimately, it's perfect obedience. And how is that fulfilled in us? Through what Christ did? Well, it's fulfilled in us because Christ perfectly obeyed the law. He was perfectly righteous. And the Spirit of God, those who walk by the Spirit, the Spirit of God applies the righteousness of Christ in us or to us. Okay? And so thereby... We are perfectly righteous before God in God's eyes. Not because we're lawkeepers or perfect lawkeepers, but because Christ, our Savior, Redeemer, our substitute, was. That's reasonable. That's, that's a, a, an interpretation I, I could sit with, but I, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think it's love. And uh, I'll show you why later on in Romans. Hey, same book, right? In chapter 13, we'll get there. Lord willing, we'll, and he says this in chapter 13 of Romans, listen to what he says, great, this is a great section, 12, 15, 12 through 15, just a great section, can't wait to get there, but in verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything, Owe no one anything except to love each other. And then he says this, for the one who loves another has, huh? What's he say? fulfilled the law for the commandments. Then he starts listing them, You know some of the commandments of the law. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. The word word is not specific. It's like in this statement, okay? They're summed up in this statement, this message. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to explain, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now listen, Paul repeats the same idea in another book that corresponds very closely with the the book of Romans, and that's the book of Galatians. And he says in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 14, he says the same thing, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, one statement. You shall, what? Love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And guess what? In, this very, in that very same chapter, in chapter 5 of Galatians, just a few verses later, in verse 22, you know what Paul does? He begins to describe the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's worth noting that the primary item the first one that he lists in describing the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love. It's love. It's love. One, thing, one more thing worth noting in is that Paul says that the requirement of the law, notice this, it's important, because some for some people this causes them to go a different direction in their interpretation. The law is fulfilled, look back at the text, the law is fulfilled... What's the word? What's the word after fulfilled? In. Yeah, in us. In, okay? It doesn't say by. So that causes some people to wonder, well, wait a minute, you're saying, Jeremy, you're saying that that the righteous requirement of the law that is fulfilled in us through the Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, those who walk according to the Spirit because of what Christ has done, and God has done through Christ to condemn sin in the flesh, it's fulfilled, it says, not by us. Aren't you talking about loving? It says it's fulfilled in us. So I don't, I'm not sure I understand that. It's fulfilled in us. It happens to us. It's kind of passive, right? Okay. Well, you could understand this this way, and I think, I think this is good. One writer says this. When he uses the, Paul uses the word in, he says, Paul pictures the requirement of the law as fulfilled In the believer, okay, just pointing out what the text says, not by him, as though to remind him that the redeemed person, who's the redeemed person? The Christian, okay, the believer, the one walking by the Spirit, the redeemed person does not possess spiritual power he can control and utilize on his own. Rather, The Spirit, the life-giving Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is always channeling that power and never releases it to those He dwells in for them to use independently of Him. The power resides in the Spirit, not in the one He indwells. You think about that, beloved. Beloved. Think about that. Therefore, in order to truly live for God, you know what we must do? We must always be, always be relying upon the Spirit of God who by His power enables us to do the impassable for us. And that is to love one another as God intended and thereby fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. You see? See, that's what I think it is. See, this is why when you begin to think this way, then when that occurs in your life, who are you going to be giving the credit and praise to to god to this holy spirit who indwells you to christ who set you free through his work and the spirit has applied to your life to the father who planned this whole wonderful thing out you won't there's no room for any pride or arrogance among christians there really isn't it's foolishness it's stupid thinking It's misunderstanding the gospel because God's done this whole thing from beginning to end. He's working it all out. And unless I'm keeping myself tapped into the Spirit of God, it's over, baby. I'm hopeless. I won't ever have any hope of trying to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Love you? Are you kidding? I love myself. I mean, Paul's making all these things. Hey, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Oh my goodness, how am I going to do that? You're kidding mean, It's not just love. It's as Christ loved the church. Christ gave himself up for a church that hated him. He gave himself up for enemies. How am I going to do that? I can't. Lo- I love when I get loved. That's my general inclination. I love when I feel like it. I love when the, the mood is right. I, You know, I love, you scratch my, you, know, you see what I'm saying? That's not, that's not the kind of love that God is talking about. So what kind of love is this? It's over the top, baby. It's supernatural love. It's love, like I've said before, it loves regardless of getting anything back in return. How am I going to do that? I counsel husbands and wives. I say, you got to love each other. you got to love, love each other. I'm not talking about ooey-gooey love. I'm talking about you got to give yourselves for one another. How am I supposed to do that? Well, the only way anybody of us can do it, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, is going to be His fruit being manifested in your life, not your own. And so when it's all said and done, you go, look what's happening in our marriage you can say, praise be to God. And we can add that to any level. Family, here, in the church. This is why church gets in trouble, right? Because they're not always plugged into the Spirit. So they're not loving one another in the power of the Spirit. And it, and it, it has dire consequences. Okay. Now, let me add one more thing, because we have a wonderful communion service today, right? We're going to celebrate the love of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Beloved, this is so important. This, if my understanding is right, I think it is, otherwise I wouldn't have told you that. If it's right of the text, and let me say this, this is so important to God that we fulfill the righteous requirement of the law which I believe is love it's so important to god that he sent his son to die for us you think about that you think about that he sent his son to die for us and his spirit to live in us in order to secure it see i we're such a kind of an independent kind of me, me, I culture that when we come to Christ, we think salvation, we think it's all about me and I. Is it? Christ died, God sent His Son, then He gives you His Spirit so that you you and your little world can be perfect, all happy? Well, certainly it does bring Maybe perfect was a bad word, but it brings joy and peace. There are personal benefits. There are, I don't want to bypass those, to our salvation, right? To know the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. My goodness, there are personal benefits. But do you think it ends there? He saved you that you might love. Love this world of messed up sinners. Loved the people that are right here in the room. How about love the ones that are in your room, at your house? You know, love, love, that you might love. Because God is, He's love, man. He is love, pure, sacrificial love. So what is life in the Spirit like? Oh, it's awesome. It's awesome. It is a life of no condemnation. It is a life free from the power and binding authority of sin and death. You say, hey, we're going to die, Jeremy. Yeah, we are. But it won't hold us down. It can't take us. It won't take us. You see? I still struggle with sin, but it doesn't own you anymore. It doesn't own you. And I'm never going to have to answer for it. Not to God. I'm no longer under condemnation. And life in the Spirit is a life that is supernaturally empowered to truly love and thereby, as I said, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Life in the Spirit. Hey, beloved, well, let me just talk to all of you for a second. Maybe you don't know this life. If you don't know this life, you haven't been liberated from the law of sin and death. You can't fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, it's impossible. And you are still under the condemnation of God. After the service, there's a few of you here, you know who you are. If you'd come up, just after the service, just come up here, they're going to be standing up here. They would love to discuss with you, to tell you, to show you what the Word of God says about how you can have life in the Spirit, how you can be born again, okay? We want to tell you. Maybe you're here, the Spirit of God, this is His work, this is another awesome thing the Spirit of God does, He convicts. He convicts, He stirs that heart, He draws that sinner Maybe that's you. You don't know Jesus Christ. You know about Him. How could you not here in in America? Almost everyone knows about Him, but you don't know Him. You don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, you don't have any life in the Spirit. Your life is really dead. You are a dead man or dead woman walking. But God can change that in an instant, in a moment. Come after the service. We would love to talk to you about that. Okay? Also, if you need prayer, they would love to pray with you. You're a believer, you need some prayer, you just want someone to pray with, come on up here and they'll pray with you. Okay? But right now, for all you believers in Jesus Christ, you who have life in the Spirit, you have been born again, you are free from condemnation, you have been liberated from the power of sin and death, you who are now enabled to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, we're going to celebrate Jesus Christ with this communion meal. All right? It's for us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior.